Welcome to Women With Books. I'm your host, author Lindsay Emery. I'm going to keep this intro as quick as possible because this interview was a long one. After we ended the interview, I was prepared to edit it substantially, but then a few days after I chatted with Damon, I found out that a friend of mine, who I discussed during this interview, had passed away. Now this friend was a gay man who grew up deep in a West Texas closet. As a boy, he hid that he played with his sister's Barbies and tried on his mother's petticoats and loved Barbara Streisand. I never really talked about romance or my books with this friend because the only books he talked about were really dreary literary ones that I refused to read or presidential biographies, which we would share and discuss. But after I found out about his passing, I went to his Facebook, as we often do these days, hoping for one last glimpse of his wry voice or his gentle smile. And I saw that he had recently left a comment on a gay romance author's Facebook page, saying how much he had enjoyed finding romance again through those books. And when I read that, so much of this interview about the importance of romance for all people of the rainbow, about how it is the literature of hope, struck me solidly, deeply in the heart. My friend needed those books, probably needed Damon's books, as a young boy literally playing in the closet. And he needed them at the end of his life, too. And that's why I didn't edit this as much as I probably was going to. Sorry, not sorry. There's just a lot of important things that need to be said right now. We, as a book community, as a romance book community, we need to talk about inclusion. But we also need to talk about joy. We need to talk about dancing. We need to talk about love and light. We need to talk about the books that light us on fire. I dedicate this episode to my friend. When you come back again, there will be amazing books waiting for you. And now on to the episode. Welcome to Women With Books. I have a very uh, special guest with us today. Um, he is the author of seven, I believe, romance yes. fiction books, two nonfiction books about writing under the name Damon Swade. And plus, you are very much in demand as a speaker and workshop leader. Welcome, Damon Swade. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So that brings me all to my big question that all my listeners want to know today. Are you, in fact, a man? Yes. I am, in fact, I have a penis and testicles. I have an XY chromosome. I have, I, yes, all of the hairy, smelly man things. I was born with them and I have them. Um, no, and it's funny. I write in, <laughs> uh, in gay romance. There's this tradition because uh, for many years, women who wrote in the genre were told to use a man's name. And, of course, the logical extension, if you're shady or a crook, is you start catfishing and pretending to be a dude. <sighs> The thing I always find funny is you can always tell. I mean, I actually, all of my favorite writers of gay romance are women. And so I find it hilarious that everyone thinks that need, you need to have a penis to write. 
at the same time, like, why? Like, why, why, why lie in a genre that's entirely about authenticity? But yes, in fact, that was a long version. <laughs> yes, I'm a dude. Yes, I have a penis. Well, I wasn't even thinking about all that, but now you've given me so much more to discuss. Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, yeah. I was scandal. just, you know, you <laughs> are scandal. the... F- yeah, it's just that this is the Women With Books podcast, and I'm sure lots of people are going to be doing double takes like, wait a second, <laughs> who is this on but this? you know what? A lot of my readers, I mean, I write I write gay romance, right? But my reader, the average gay romance reader is, uh, it's not, about 90% straight women, heterosexual women. My readership is probably about 65% women. I have way more men for some reason. Um, I have a lot of straight men for some reason. Oh. But, but uh, yeah, I know, weird. And we found out, by my publisher is very uh, sort of proactive about surveys and, and market research. And so we found out that I have all these guys, which is like a higher percentage, but way more women read, period. And way more women read romance. So obviously, I'm most comfortable in rooms full of smart, savvy women. Oh, well, then you're in the right place. I should also add, you know, I didn't even put this in your um, intro, but I should also add that you are a current member of the board of directors. Is that what they're called? That's right. I'm a a director at large for the Romance Writers of America. Yeah. So, again, you're very comfortable being in a room with lots of... Someone asked me, actually, they said, how do you feel about being... I should tell you, I was raised by a very politically active, very successful lesbian lawyer in the Deep South. And so that means that I was essentially around a bunch of bossy, pushy women that told me what to do for my entire life. And so I was in some interview. I was doing a TV thing, out, I think out in L.A. And someone said, well, how does it feel being in a room with all these women who are so opinionated? And I was like, heaven. It feels <laughs> like heaven. It's my, it literally is my idea of heaven, like pushy, opinionated, talented women telling me what to do. Mama. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm in my comfort space. It's my blankie. I've never felt so loved. Exactly. Um. Well, let's just start from the very beginning then. So, I mean, I think most of, you know, your your average female reader of romance started reading the genre as young teens being, it was passed down to them from their grandma or their mom. I mean, is that how you got started? Yeah, or? actually, yes. Okay. My mom, well, here's the thing. My mom was an omnivorous reader. She was one of those 70s feminists who was very, like, sex-positive, woman-positive. And so she read romance and loved romance. And romance was always kind of around our house. The irony is I grew up in Houston, which is where RWA was founded. And RWA was actually – I actually lived about 10 minutes from where RWA was founded. I did not know this at the time, but I grew up in the 80s. I I turned 11 in 1981, and so I – watch romance explode right as my puberty exploded and so suddenly I was like oh I have a penis and it does things and I was like oh there are books about relationships where people do things with their genitals and so it was a great I'm a voracious reader I had read everything in the house and so of course I'm going to pick up a Barbara Cartland a Mary Stewart uh you know a Victoria Holt and so kind of by the time I was about 12 13 years old I'd probably read 100 150 romances but that was because I was reading everything I was reading Agatha Christie I was reading sci-fi I mean anything you could hand me I would read so in the back of my mind it was just another genre and I never because I was raised in this very sort of liberal home the idea that you would denigrate a book that was based on the idea that relationships are powerful and love can save people. I never understood why that was bad. So like as a dude, my mother had said to me when I had puberty, she was like, cunnilingus is very important. And so like I had been raised to think like women's pleasure is important and women have agency. And so to me, romance was like, oh, look, they're allowed to have feelings. Now, I wouldn't have said at 14 or 15, like, oh, I am a diehard romance reader. 
But in 1980, ooh, it must have been 1983 or four, by accident, I was in a mall in North Houston and I found a book called The Lord Won't Mind, which I didn't know it at the time, had been a bestseller. 16 weeks on the New York Times list back in 1970. It was the first ever mass market gay romance blockbuster. And it was about two gorgeous, smart, funny, attractive, successful dudes who happened to be in love with another dude. And it's funny, finding that book and then reading that book was when I knew I was gay. It literally is when I was like, oh wait, I like women and I'm attracted to women and I can have sex with women, but I really like dudes. And then I became obsessed with the author, Gordon Merrick, and then I tracked down all the other books obsessively, like Gollum, <laughs> just went and found these other books and devoured them. And so in a lot of ways, my early understanding of male intimacy as a guy who wanted to be intimate with dudes was from romance novels. And so to me, I thought it was normal to fall in love and commit to someone because that's what romance novels taught me to do. And I grew up in a house full of women who committed to people they cared about. So... I was sort of if you if it was as if I was raised in a lab to write romance novels <laughs> because I was raised as a guy in a house full of women I believed in the power of emotion I believed in the power of the happy ending and I was a traditionalist right like my mom was very big on education so like I loved Aristotle and I loved Freitag and I loved kind of formal um, classical plotting and so romance was right up my alley I, I yeah I love it love it love it love it that's amazing I got cold chills when you you said that because I mean I just wish that every every young teen oh yeah <laughs> you know no There's matter straight no gay ma gender queer, orientation whatever, whatever yeah to have could a have that where you yeah. have puberty and you are told you have value and your feelings are powerful at the moment when your feelings are at their most destructive it really I mean in some ways it saved my life because I. I came of age exactly when HIV was murdering all of my mom's friends. Mm -hmm. My mom was a lesbian and all of her friends were gay men. So I carried coffins. 1982, I carried something like 15 coffins in a single year because I was the only person over five feet tall who could hold a coffin that could fit a suit and walk at these funerals. And so all of my mom's friends were dying and I was one of the pallbearers at all these funerals. So like when I hit puberty, I knew what a condom was before I had pubic hair because my mother was like, you're gonna die, you're gonna die, you're gonna oh. die. And so for me to have the knowledge that like love could fix things, that a relationship was powerful, that, that you know, commitment mattered, changed the way I got through high school, it changed the way I went to college. I mean, and listen, I had meaningless sex, we all had meaningless sex with people, but I also was never interested in that other stuff because I was like, oh, there's a better way. There's a better way. Because right. I knew right? like, yeah. the genre had taught me. Well, and I'm, I'm so sorry that you had to go through no, the, it's, the listen, epidemic. No, life experience. Epidemic, well, I right? I know. But, I mean, so oh. I grew up, um, just as, this is totally a side note. This is what this, is what this interview is going to be. But, um, but I grew up, you know, my dad showing me pictures of his freshman year of college, his class picture, and going through going, he died in Vietnam, he died in Vietnam, he died in Vietnam. Right. And then I became friends later on in my life with an uh, older gay gentleman. Uh, he was one of my closest friends. And he would show me pictures of his gay corral from the 80s. And it was very much the same thing. Same, he died. Sure. He died. He died. And, and that was the first time I guess I'd really realized that that was, you know, on the same scale as Vietnam. And they, um, and they talk about it. That generation, my mom's generation talks about it like a war. Exactly. They talk about it. When they talk about the quilt, 
they're mm-hmm. talking about it like war. And it, a lot of it had to do because Reagan was so disgusting. Reagan ignored it for <laughs> so my long. Fr- that sounds oh, exactly just, like my friend. <laughs> yeah, no, he's terrible. I mean, he murdered people and he knew it. And actually the big sh- the shocker was Nancy Reagan. Let me remind you, they were show people. Like they were two schmackters who had oh, exactly. walked into the White yeah. House. But Nancy Reagan actually made them do something about Rock Hudson. And then one, that's why Rock Hudson was so pivotal because he was this gorgeous middle-class white guy. And so they couldn't sweep it under the rug. They couldn't say it was IV mm-hmm. drugs. They couldn't, you know, all these things. And so mm-hmm. suddenly it was a media frenzy and then showbiz got involved and then, and then, and then, and then. But people do talk about it like a Holocaust. Right. Um, anyway. Very much. <laughs> but anyway, so on that note, well, okay, so the kids today, and I, this, I'm getting a little off topic again, but kids today don't realize that. And so it's up us for, sorry, it's up to us, uh, you know, older people to communicate that to them. But they blessedly don't have that experience. And now they might be picking up your books. You know what's funny? I talk about this. My, My husband and I have this thing we do whenever we drive through a small town, which is whenever we drive through town, it's almost like this promise we made each other. We always say to each other, how many kids tried to kill themselves tonight? How many kids? Gay, straight, whatever. How many teenagers in some horrible home abused by their loved ones tried to kill themselves? And every time I finish a book, I think this is a chance for some kid, gay, straight, male, female, whatever, to have hope. I Listen, I say this all the time. I believe romance is the literature of hope. I think that people read romance because hope is the most precious, rare thing in the world. And it is the one thing that is hard to, you can keep everything in life but hope because we're all gonna die one day, right? We're all eventually gonna get down in the worm buffet. And so it's very hard to maintain that. And so when people say like, ah, romance, it's so easy. I'm like, yes, because life is so uplifting. (laughs) No, (laughs) you have to be like an Olympic athlete. Like we are, the romance community, we're the Olympians of hope, man, because we look at the audience and we look at our fellow writers and we say, come on gang do you believe in love like can we all do this together there is something possible you can live a life of beauty and so like the books are like lighthouses they stand on this dark shore and people in stormy waters need something to 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 shine they need something to swim towards and so i think that's a big difference today as a teenager I could log on and find a love story. And I don't mean erotic. I don't mean spanky. (laughs) I mean just literally like two people falling in love where they would actually look like me and act like me. And that's life affirming. You know, this is a big discussion in in communities of color where you have all these young black authors that grew up and there were no books where you were you could have a black character on the cover because publishers would say oh it doesn't sell it doesn't sell and we see this in hollywood we see this in television and that's changing but it there is something to be said for erasure there is something to be said for validation of like saying we all deserve a happy ending that hope is if not a human right a human possibility and that's that's revolutionary to say to anybody you have value. I just had a conversation with my youngest daughter uh, last week, I think. She was in the car and, you know, as all great conversations happen <laughs> in the car. Um, and she's just like, Mom, maybe, do you think Disney's going to have a princess movie where there's two girls or two guys? And I'm like, They've talked about it. And, you yeah, know, there was the scandal I think Frozen. they will. When Frozen came out, the religious right tried to claim that Elsa was a lesbian character. And there's a lot of people who read that character as being either asexual or demisexual or actually lesbian. And who knows? I mean, here's the funny thing. 
I don't even think the sexuality enters into it as much as the homosocial bonding. It's one of the reasons that there is so much like LGBT focus on storylines that might not be homoerotic or homosexual, right? Where people are actually having romantic relationships that are same sex, but where there's just really strong bonding. Like Thelma mm -hmm. and Louise is not about two lesbians, but the lesbian community looks to it because it's such a powerful story of female intimacy, right? Mm -hmm. Ditto, you see all these dudes that are obsessed with action movies where you have like brotastic like duos going into 48 hours, right? <laughs> where what they're doing is they're projecting homosocial bonding onto homoerotic relationships. That's, you know... That's the magic of the closet. Well, did you ever imagine that there would be a movie such as Love, Simon? Dude, out? never <laughs> did I ever. When I, this true story, when I was a teenager, now remember, I was raised in an LGBT home. When I came out to my mom the first time, she literally said, ew, gross, why would you want to be with a guy? And so, <laughs> like, my mom fought me coming out, but... I grew up watching LGBT film. I saw Victor Victoria in the movie theater in 1982. I was 11 years old. And so, like, I remember LGBT cinema as it kind of exploded in indie. But the thing with indie film is, if it wasn't a period piece, most of those movies were about people who got beaten to death or died of an mm -hmm. overdose or a disease. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it was so negative. But to have rom-coms now, to have, like, erotic dramas, to have people, to have Moonlight, uh, like, at the Oscars, that is that's literally revolutionary. Not because I think that every movie needs to have some LGBT person in it. Not because everything needs to be quote othered, but because there are, there are kids out there that live these quiet lives of desperation that just want to see want to be seen. They just want right. to be validated. Right. Um, and or like you, they don't even know what they need to see right. until they see right. it. Until you see it. Until yeah. you see it. I mean, one of the things, I actually think one of the reasons that so many people on the sort of right, red, conservative side don't want these television shows and don't want these movies is because there are people who see it that realize, oh, wait, I'm in a loveless marriage. And, and they now, are reading I, your books. Right. Listen, <laughs> I've gotten those letters. I've gotten those letters where people are like, I feel so filthy. I feel unworthy. I'm married to a woman. She has no idea. And they'll, you know, they'll pour out their hearts. One of the, one of the saddest letters I ever got, it was when my first book came out, I had this guy write to me, and he was convinced I was a firefighter, that I was secretly a firefighter. And I was like, no, really, I live in Manhattan. I'm not a firefighter. I, I, I respect them. I have many friends who are firefighters. He was like, come on, man. I'm coming out to you. You're being, and he's like, the whole, the, I'm like revealing my truth. I'm speaking my truth. How dare you? And I was like, no, I swear. I swear to God. <laughs> I'm trying to be honest. I am not. But he was so used to having to be closeted that the idea of writing to some schmuck in New York who wasn't being honest back, like he was convinced I was lying. Um, and it was, an, it was a compliment, right? I mean, it was a compliment that he thought I was a firefighter. But at the same time, like this was a guy, he, his boyfriend, he had a boyfriend. His family didn't know, but he was up in Alaska. He lived an hour and a half away from this guy. And they would, it was like Brokeback Mountain. They would, oh, like I was, that's, I was just they would sneak off and broke back it at some hunting lodge thing. They would go and like snuggle in the dark. Mm. But you know, people find ways to live lives that are yeah. horrible. Well, you have talked about it. And you, there was also a great essay you wrote that I found online about growing up gay in Texas. Mm. And, um, and I said, I really enjoyed it because I also live in Texas. And oh, because, we're in Texas. Yeah, in Dallas. I didn't know uh, that. Well, yeah. Hi, Dallas. I'm Houston. I know. And uh, yeah. we don't have to hate each other just because it's Dallas. You know what? Houston. No, because I spent part of my childhood um, very close to where RWA was founded, too. So I have oh, a... You know. 
I think we could probably compare uh, street, yeah, like street the corners. North, the, yeah. When I was thinking about that book I bought, it was at the Northwest Mall, if that gives you any idea. Exactly. Yes, yeah. so you know. Well, and so most of my gay friends and family have all grown up, Houston, Dallas, or, sure. or live around here now. Um, so it was... And you live in New York now, and but since you travel back and forth to Houston, I have to ask, do you see any changes that have tons, happened? Tons, okay, massive changes. I mean, the thing is, there are certain things that don't change. I actually think the myth of conservative America is that it's homogenous, and I don't think it is. Some of the most accepting, loving, warm, mellow, relaxed people are in deep East Texas. I actually, my, uh, my last novel was a cowboy book called Lickety Split, and it's based, um, loosely based, one of the characters is based on a caretaker out at our ranch, and he's a real guy, and that dog is a real dog, and that ranch is a real farm, and and um, he had a partner he was with for 25 years. He was a former Marine. The partner was in the Secret Service. These are military guys from way back, the tallest, butchest Texans. You can't imagine, like six foot six, and they could wrestle a bear, right? And they fostered kids, and they raised steer, and this was in deep East Texas out near Nacogdoches, and nobody blinked. Everybody knew them. Everybody knew they were the salt of the earth. I don't think people are as uptight as they pretend to be. In the same way that in the last presidential election, you know, they did all these surveys about conservative Christians, and they discovered everyone who marks conservative Christian, only like 20% of them actually go to church. So I think sometimes people, I was just talking about this with the board, actually, the RWA board, that there's a big difference between opinions and behavior, that people will say, oh, yes, yes, I'm a staunch conservative, but then they will reveal that they embezzle money and they're having sex with their best friend's wife, and they also, in the same way that people say, oh, yes, yes, I'm very liberal, but they're secretly racist, <laughs> because I think people say these things because the identity appeals to them, but the mm. behavior is quite difficult, and so I'm not always sure that I, I don't always buy that opinions and behavior overlap. And so, as I say, like, I think a lot of, quote, red state America is very, very tolerant and very diverse and very accepting in the same ways that I think that certain pockets in Manhattan, listen, in, if you go to Staten Island, which is a little island off the tip of Manhattan, those are some of the most conservative people in the United States, right? So <laughs> you, d you never know. I, I was at an event with Barbara Vay a couple of years back, and I was seated across from this little teeny blonde woman, and everyone had warned me. It was a very, Debbie Maycomber was the keynote, and so there were a lot of inspi authors there, and everyone had said to me, like, oh, you have to be careful, you have to be careful. They really, they're all really conservative Republicans, and I was like, oh my God, they're going to knife me, they're going to push me down a coal chute. <laughs> I'm sitting across from this little teeny woman whose name was Deanne Gist. I had never heard of her in my life. She's so gorgeous and so teeny. Turns out, she lived near Second Baptist in Houston. She knew Kincaid, where I went to school. She, like, we had all these people in common because her church was my sister's church. We're sitting there talking. She's one of my best friends now. And the funny thing is, she's actually a Christian. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, she and I have very different opinions about politics and everything else, but she listens, she talks, and we have, we're such good friends now because we actually have a relationship with each other. And so I think the minute you get into this cartoon of like, I think this, therefore, or I live with this person, therefore I believe, yeah, that's not real. That's just, that's stuff for, for Fox News. Yeah. I, I mean, I see it a lot, people canceling Texas because it's a red state. And it is, sure. and it has its problems. But then I say, you know what, Ed, just a few years ago, Houston had all of its major, you know, city officials were LGBT. That's right. No, it actually, know, it's, it's a red state, but it's blue cities. So yeah. it's like... Texas is not really like that all over Texas, right? I'm right. sure there are pockets anywhere. I'm sure there are pockets down the street from where I am right now in Manhattan. So mm -hmm. 
I'm just, I'm never one to sort of tar everybody with a brush and say, well, all y'all can go to hell because I know for a fact I have family. I, yeah. My family is still in Houston. I go down at least twice a year. I love my family. I don't love Texas. <laughs> You're not moving family. back? No, 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 no. That, that Texas is fine without me. It's better. I left like someone getting out of a burning building. I really, <laughs> ooh, I got out of there. I was 16 and I ran. But I'll tell you something. Do you know that my publisher does, we do all this market research. My biggest markets in the United States are all red states. My biggest really? markets. Newsflash, and this is what I found out from my publisher. Oral Roberts University sells a lot of copies of my book. The Mormons out in Utah, they buy a lot. I mean, thousands and thousands of my books. North Dakota, some of the weirdest fan mail I've ever gotten was from like octogenarians in North. One of my first, one of the first letters I ever got, I will not tell you because I want to be explicit, was an, a request for an extremely explicit erotic content book with werewolves because of their <laughs> healing abilities. And it was from a grandmother who was eight, in her 80s in North Dakota. So you never know. You never know mm. where they are. You never know what they want. Do you do this for your readers? Do you? <laughs> I have this the service one, you provide. Well, I love <laughs> no, but what I love doing is I have actually built fans into every, except for my first book, obviously because I didn't have fans yet. But every book since my first, I have built fans in. So like in Bad Idea, Jillian Stein and Rena are real people. Leanne is a real person. In Lickety Split, Janet Rodman is a real person. Those are people that I met that I just love them. And I was like, oh, can I make you a character in a book? And they were like, oh, hell yeah. And so I I absolutely build fans in just because I love them or because they're beautiful spirits or because they have an interesting personality or a vibe. That's amazing. I just love people. So speaking about the industry, um, how did you become involved with uh, RWA and, and, and being a board member? Being a board member. So that was back in 2015. Um, I got a call from Diane Kelly, who was the, the, she had just come in as, or she was about to be president. She was the incoming president. And they had had two board members drop out. One was for health reasons and one was for family problems. And so um, she had to appoint two board members. And they were doing a big push. What she said to me was, we we're doing a big push. We have to do something about the diversity problem in RWA. We're seeing this rise of, of white nationalism. We're seeing, and this is 2015, right? So this is mm. before any of the other stuff going on. And she said, we really need to deal with this organization. We've been kicking the can. We have to deal with it. And my response to her was, I don't believe you. No, thanks. Mm. And I literally said that to her. I was like, I do not want to be on the board. I, at some point, I would love to be on the board. I actually love serving on, on boards of chapters. But because I love that kind of volunteer work, but I actually kind of called her bluff and I was like, I don't believe you. I said, there's always some middle class white lady telling me about how they want to be diverse. I don't want to be a token. And she's like, no, no, I really mean it. I'm really serious. And she said, just think about it. Just think about it. And I let a week go by and I fought and I wrestled and I fought and I wrestled and I talked to her a couple of times. I talked to other board members and people were like, you should do it. Or then other people were people in the minority communities were like, no, this is all bogus. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And then my husband sat me down. It was a Saturday night. It was about eight days later. And he said, you know what? If you, do, if you don't do this, you're a fraud. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, you always say you want to make change. You always say you want to take a stand. Here is someone saying, let's do this. I believe in you. And he said, here's the thing. Go in and be a squeaky wheel. Do not sit back. He said, the thing that every organization has is a lot of people sitting on the brake saying, no, 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 hold up, hold up. We don't want to rock the boat. He said, they're saying they want to rock the boat. So he was like, this is your superpower. Your superpower is rocking the boat. So go do it. And it is the best decision I ever made. 
Um, I I am so honored to what serve. a smart husband you have. Oh, he's Jeffrey. There's one perfect husband in the world, and I got him. I'm so sorry, everybody. Like literally, he is. <laughs> oh, I know. A, I know that you. I don't have him. <laughs> he's a forensic investigator who's gorgeous and funny and smart and great in bed and hilarious, and we love all the same movies and he likes the same video games. Like he's amazing. He's oh my he's, goodness. I literally got the one good one, and like a lot of things in RWA, like RWA is inherently because it's an organization with 10,000 members, it's got to move slowly. It's like turning a cruise ship, right? Everything takes time. The problem is when you have something that big, the conservative voices often win because what happens is it's very mm -hmm. easy to say, well, let's not deal with eBooks, we'll kick the can. Let's not deal with indie publishing, we'll kick the can. Let's not deal with Amazon as a monopoly, we'll kick that can. Let's not deal with the fact that we have an 86% white membership, we'll kick that can. And all that can kicking for 20 years has left us with a lot of dented cans. And yeah. so starting with Diane's year, we stopped kicking the cans. And let me tell you, it's not pretty. Like some of the stuff we found, the stuff, the letters we get behind the scenes, both pro and con, these changes ha are shocking. I mean, I mm -hmm. definitely have, ooh, <laughs> I have seen <laughs> wowza. But here's the thing. Every time that RWA has been able to do something to help professional romance authors move forward all professional romance authors move forward they've been on the right side so it really has been like one of the great decisions of my life and it, i full credit it was my husband because i was not going to do it and he basically held a gun to my head and was like i call i call bs and i did it and it's been amazing and it's and the truth is like does rwa have problems absolutely is stuff going to change without question here's the thing we're doing it all those people who said three years ago it'll never happen Dude, it's happening. I mean, like, it is happening. And it's going to keep happening. And the thing with any volunteer organization is how does it get better? People volunteer. People step up. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch. I love being a part of the process. It's, it's really a gift. Yeah, and for those who don't know in the audience, since I have a lot of readers who might not also be on writer Twitter, um, the RWA board, and correct me if, I'm, if I say this wrong, but the RWA, RWA board has recently come out with a statement identifying systemic bias against black authors and... Um, did we? Did, did you say any other time? No, <laughs> or, or actually, authors of color? Is, okay. We know that we know that there is a problem for authors of color, but specifically black authors. Right. In the thirty years of the Rita, there has never been a black winner. Yeah. Um, in the thirty years of the Rita, twelve black authors have finals for the Rita, <laughs> which is shocking. I mean, statistically, is just horrifying. It's it's statistically unlikely <laughs> and horrifying, and um, not to say the statistics are unlikely, but the statistics show that it's not. It's the points to other things rather than yes. just, yeah. Um, and so because of that, there's been an awful lot of debate and um, discussion and probably emails to you and other people. And, uh, you know, as we're and all sorts of diversity is being talked about. It is our job as RWA to work for the betterment of romance as a genre. And part of that is showing romance as a genre that RWA has their best interests at heart. Otherwise, how can we survive as an organization? But, you know, something to think about. I was at a – Nielsen's did this romance panel. This is in San Diego. And Rita Clay Estrada was there and who is one of the founders of RWA. And she got up and we were talking. I was sort of riffing. And I said, listen, it's not a pie. It's not a zero-sum mm -hmm. game. It's oh, not God, like if yes. you get a slice, I don't get a slice. The thing with romance is the pie is a magic pie. It gets bigger. And so, like, every time you sell a book, that's another customer, another reader – 
who might want to read my book or my friend's book or my writing partner's book or my chapter mate's book. And so we actually, as an organization and as a genre, benefit by finding new readers and by helping the right, right reader find the right book. Because let me tell you, I'm, I've been writing professionally for 30 years. Not every book is for every person. Not every movie is for every person. I don't expect everyone to love everything I do. That would be ridiculous. Having said that, by helping the right book reach the right reader for the right writer, I'm actually helping myself because it makes readers happy to read the genre. And so like in RWA, like whenever we're saying like, hey guys, look, let's all pull together, let's do this, all of us. That means authors of every background, every ethnicity, every gender, every orientation. We actually get stronger by reaching out, by being open and inclusive. And listen, we write romance. The whole genre is about joining hands, right? It's about people mm -hmm. coming together. The more we include, the more we bring new readers to new books, the better the books get, the, the, the better the reads are, the better the feels are, right? Because we're helping everybody find the book they want. And I don't expect every author to write a book that every person wants. Th that would be crazy. We're not bugs. It's not like we're in a Soviet bloc country where they're like, you can have romance now. <laughs> no one is gonna dispense your romance like government cheese. You can go and find, if you want Amputee Mermaids, Groovy. That book is out there. If you want Oyster Shifters, Groovy. You can have that book. The thing that RWA wants to do is level the playing field so we can actually all make a living and do work that we're proud of and find readers and help readers have the happy endings that they want to have. And listen, I want a happy ending. I'm a reader. I read like a maniac. I read 1,200 words a minute. I go through three, four books in a day. Do you know how hard it is to find books that aren't the same old, same old? What? And so, like, I'm always looking for, like, new, funky, weird. I'm a genre slut. Like, I'll read everything. I read, you name it, I read oh, it. Oh, I cannot wait till we get to the book recommendation portion of this. Oh, no, no, I'm this. crazy. I'm a crazy person. <laughs> like, I read, I read every, like, Amish, T YA, inspirational, or, like, BDSM with shifters. Like, you name it, I'm in. And so, like, I'm always looking for something fresh. I'm always looking for, because for me, it's the voice. I don't really care about, the trope is just like, that's like bodybuilding. That's like somebody doing a double bicep or a, a rear tri-delt or whatever. I just want to see the muscle. And I just want to mm. see the energy of the author. And so the, yeah. the trope or whatever, that's just candy. Well, I have to ask, does, you mentioned the percentage of white women in the, or white members of the organization. Does RWE RWA keep numbers on how many male authors there are? It's a very, very small number. I mean, the membership, I think we just did a, there was a survey actually, I think it's on the RWA website. I think men, it's something like 6% of the organization, 8%. It's a really tiny number. Oh my goodness. The thing is that I, well, I have two feelings about this. One, I think way more people are writing romance than are, that guys are writing romance that are actually members of RWA or confessing that they're writing romance. I think right. they call it other things, whatever. I also think way more guys are reading romance that are mm -hmm. confessing to it. When I first met my husband, you know that thing you do where you go to the bookshelf to find out if you can date them a second time? I went to the bookshelf and I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, forensics books, like skulls and skeletons. And I was like, he's not a serial killer. He's an investigator. I don't have to worry about being Knock killed. Wood. Right, exactly. And then <laughs> vampire books. And I was like, okay, Anne Rice, right, right. Okay, good. Yeah, vampire Dracula, sure, sure. And then I was like, Anita Blake? You read Anita Blake? And he was like, well, it's a vampire book. I was like, honey. That's an erotic <laughs> romance. And he was like, no, no, it's a, they're vampires. I was like, honey, there are weird panther orgies in that. That is an erotic romance. You read romance novels. And he was so ashamed at the Aww. thought. 
that he was reading romance. And I was like, why are you ashamed? I celebrate that. I think that's so cool. Like, to me, it was a positive. But his first impulse, because he grew up very conservative in a very, very sort of uptight, small town, Midwestern, his impulse was shame because the idea of writing a romance, uh, reading a romance was somehow off color. And so I think there are probably way more guys that read romantic suspense and they call it a mystery or reading a paranormal and calling it urban fantasy just because I think our culture has this strange shame about men accessing emotion and talking about emotion we have yeah. no problem with men beating the hell out of each other but the idea that a man can turn to a woman and say I love you and then she can say I love you this is very shocking apparently <laughs> like this is, a, this is a startling and revolutionary concept that men might want to read about positive relationships I was talking to a friend who's an author who has a teenage son, and she was like, newsflash, if you're 15 and you would like to know how to get down with the ladies, read one of my books. Because it's, a, it's literally a user's manual. Learn to talk about your feelings, for God's sake. I was at, um, during RWA last year, it was one of the luncheons, and we had a bunch of open spots at our table, and this gentleman came over, and he asked if he could sit there, and we said yes. And, um, you know, he was an author, and we got to talking. And then a few more minutes later, another man came up and because we still had the open spots and he asked if he could sit down and he sat next to, you know, the other gentleman at our table. And I, it was just kind of one of those moments where I looked at them. I'm like, this is a move. I recognize this move. I've done this move. When you go into a conference and you are a minority and you look for the other people like you. Sure to sit next to because we're primates right we're monkeys we're looking for the same yeah yeah and and i you know of course i i always love the tables at rwa because i'm like oh who do i who am i going to get to sit next to today you know so this was very exciting to me and i wanted to know all about their lives but um probably more than they wanted to say but um and ever since then i've been thinking you know every time diversity comes up and we're so female oriented and that's wonderful because we all need that space but i you know i think about those two guys too and i'm like you know what we just have to be welcoming for everyone you know if you are in this with me you are in this with me i never forget that i am working in a genre that is by for with women and i tell you i fully celebrate that i stand yes. on the shoulders of female giants do you know what i mean mm -hmm. so i have there i have nothing but mad respect and gratitude because their work is the reason I'm allowed to make up things and get paid for it. Like, I think I'm so grateful. Whenever people say, like, what is your one piece of marketing advice you always give? I say, I tell people, say thank you. You get paid to tell lies. <laughs> like, say thank you. <laughs> say thank you. So on the one hand, like, I, I think that's, the, that's sort of like baseline is this is a women's genre because, frankly, women are better at it. Women know how to talk authentically about emotion. They know how to edit authentically for emotion. Frankly, they know how to read authentically for emotion. And I think this is very upsetting to many people burdened with a penis. I mean, you know, we forget this, right? We're apes. And what is the thing that we do that makes us human? We tell stories. We have narrative as, you know, and there's, there's actually cognitive research that indicates the thing that distinguishes us from lower primates is our ability to create narrative. And why do we create narrative? because we're sitting around a fire in the dark and there are scary monsters outside the circle of light. And what do we do? We teach each other with stories. We build families with stories. We build cities with stories, communities. This is how we literally become a species is by telling each other stories and sharing emotional experience. And so like anything we can do, it's again, it's like that lighthouse thing, right? Like I wanna build a lighthouse because I have been out on a dark ocean <laughs> where there was no mm -hmm. lighthouse and I wanted a lighthouse. And so anytime 
I can build that, offer that, give that. I want to, that's, that to me, that is why I'm grateful, is I'm given the opportunity to build lighthouses. That's, oh. Just remembered, I have one really controversial RW, it's a controversial RWA question. Um, I asked around and I said, what do you guys want me to ask Damon Swade? And this was the number one thing. Um, What is going to happen with the post Rita dance party this year? (laughs) Um, I have to tell you, I would have to go and look at those loops. I'm not on that committee. I'm actually, <laughs> I'm working with the word. <laughs> you were all prepared. You were like, I was all uh-oh, set for something. Uh-oh. I was, seriously, I was like, oh my God. I don't know if I have legal permission to talk about this. Um, no, I will tell you that we have heard about what a hit that dance party was. Everyone loved that dance party. You know, I'll tell you, there was a lot of anxiety about the change in the schedule. We had said, oh, do you remember that party in Atlanta? There was this fabulous party that was thrown in Atlanta. I think Sam Hain threw it. And everyone talked about it. And we said as a board, we were like, you know what we should do? Let's get a DJ. Let's do a party on Thursday night. That dance party became like the pivotal moment in Orlando. And we didn't expect it. We knew it would be fun and we knew people would go. But I, I would imagine not being on that committee, there will be a dance party. Okay. I would. I can guarantee if there's a dance party, I will be there at that dance party. <laughs> I love, oh, I love, I love to dance. so That's, fun. Yeah, yeah. But it's see, again, like, I just want to be with people, man. Like, I want to, I want to be down in it. It was great. Sweaty. And I think of all times, I mean, especially now that we're all kind of cranky and, and looking at each other funny right now. And, and, you know, for good reason. We need to have these uncomfortable conversations. But I would also like to just be able to be like, you know what? Let's, Cut loose. Let's cut loose and and, and be just, friendly and be together yes. and be there's something I think there's something also where it, as writers we're always sitting alone in a room <laughs> typing <laughs> and it's really easy to forget that you're a human being in a body and the thing about dancing is you're just a body and mm. so there's something so human and primal about being in a space where we're just like joyful and happy and together it's a yeah I I love that I love that wearing- event. Yeah, I'm wearing flats to the Rita's from now on. Obviously. Just, you know. Oh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Please. Okay, well, let's go. I want to talk about Hothead, um, which is your debut book, correct? Yes, that's that right. my first. And it has been named one of the top 100 romances of, uh, I guess, of all of, time. Uh, of all time. It was until on a that... list with Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. <sighs> Crazy. Another guest on this podcast actually said it changed her life. Oh, wow. And, Who was it? Um, Robin Bradford. Oh, I love Robin. I know. Oh, she's so marvelous. And I was like, and, and for those that didn't listen to that podcast, she's a librarian. And I'm like, she's read everything. She's amazing. And so. And a champion for the genre. She's always. So wonderful. Fresh voices, new books. I love her. She, I've gotten so many great recommendations just following her on Twitter. Yes. So this book um, is about two firefighters. And the stakes are, like, they could not be higher. <laughs> they, like, literally, life, death, family bodily injury um it's like best friends it's like they could lose everything in this book and um so and one of my critiques often about contemporary romance is that you know the stakes are kind of yeah you know (laughs) they're not that high you know and this this one definitely had it so if if anyone out there wants um a book where you literally don't know if if these people are going to like end up in a puddle of bodily (laughs) (laughs) i had a friend true story i had a friend 
who called, um, a, a gay man who called me, and he didn't read romance at all, but he knew what a romance was. He was reading the book, and he called me, and he was about a third of the way in, and he called me. He was so mad, and he was like, God damn it! You're going to kill him! You're going to kill him! And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I know! You're going to kill him! I can't finish it! I was like, what are you talking about? It's a romance novel. Why? How am I going to? No! No! You're such an asshole! You're going to kill him! You're going to kill him! He was convinced that Dante was going to die. And like... he was on watch that he and I was like, it's a rom. There's, it's a couple. What? I, if I did it. not know romance and if I did not know you, I I could see that. And especially, you know, as if you were used to like gay romance or gay literature where everyone does die. Yes, that's true. Uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Which, I had a fan write me a letter. What? It's another. She wrote me a thing and she said, "So you almost killed my children today." And I said, "What?" <laughs> and she was like, "Well, I was up all night reading Hothead, and I started reading at about 11. And then at around seven, I had to take my kids to school. And so I got them in the car. I hadn't showered. I hadn't done anything. I just put on a baseball cap. And at every stoplight, I put the car in park. And I would read a couple of pages. And then I would take the car out of park and then drive to the next stoplight. And I said, I was like, um, it, the book doesn't change. Like, you could take them home, like, to school and come home. And then she was like, but I had to know. And I was like, that is the greatest compliment you could give me. So this is my new goal, is that I want to try to kill children all across America, is I want to write books that make people terrified. Please let that be so. Sarah McLean has a funny thing she talks about with this, where she says, um, she's like, I don't know how you contemporary people do it. Because in historical, you can have abductions, and they can get in carriages and curricles, and you know, there's always like a baby somewhere, and then someone's going to be a duke. She's like, in contemporary, they go to the post office, they have to go to the bank, they yeah. have a meal. I disagree. I think anything can be high stakes if you push it. Well, okay. So when I, and then when I got to the end of the book, um, well, let me just say this. This is why uh, you had a letter um, accusing you of being a New York firefighter because these <laughs> two characters are firefighters and the detail and research is obvious. Um, so do you know a lot of firefighters or how did you so I, get so into that? So there's a funny story about this book. I had a friend who had a series of terrible horrible, painful, adulterous affairs with married firefighters for about seven years. And this meant that every time I was working on a movie, I would be up in this writing house. She was a novelist. She would be at the house. I would be at the house writing. And then there would be these firefighters. And they were all named Tommy and Greggy and Joey and Billy and whatever, right? And and they were all very nice guys, but it meant that they would have loud sex upstairs, and then they would come down and drink with me. And I was like the funny gay friend. So for seven years, I was in these bars in Red Hook with all these firefighters and cops and EMTs. They were all first responders. And I was just kind of around them. And I was like the wacky gay guy who was like, I, you could tell me any gross joke and nothing would offend me. And so I got to be kind of friendly with them. And one night, um, this is many years ago, uh, I was out on a porch. Um, have I told you the story? I don't want to repeat myself. I don't think so. So I was out on a porch with this guy. They had just had very loud sex and then second round, very loud sex. So it's about midnight and I'm drinking whiskey. And so he gets a glass and we're sitting on the porch telling gross sex stories as you do as two guys. And we're kind of like, yeah. And then she farted and then, yeah, yeah. And then he, you know, he fell down the stairs. So we're telling these ridiculous dating stories and it's getting later and we're getting kind of drunker and his face is really sad. And he looks at me. There's this long pause, and he kind of looks off into space, and he looks at me, and he's like, you know, I was in love with a dude once. Silence. (gasps) Crickets. Crickets. And I was like, the what? And he said, yeah, you know, we kind of grew up together. We were like brothers. And 
we banged rods together and we went to the rock together which is where the fdny trains and we were at the same firehouse and our families knew each other and we were always getting into trouble and he was always bailing mm. me out and he'd like all this crazy stuff and he said you know i started having these weird feelings and i started thinking about him and he's like the one person i thought about all the time and he's like and then you know i was married and then i had like a three-way we got drunk i had a three-way with my wife and him and then my wife got angry because I touched him. And then he got angry and punched me out because I touched him. And then we stopped talking. And he wouldn't return my calls. And he hated my guts. And he called me a faggot. And I didn't know what to do. I divorced my wife. I panicked. I was, in t I was, t I was terrified. He was like, I was terrified. This is the person who mattered the most to me. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. And then the towers came down and he died. And the look on his face was so horrible. It was like watching someone who had died, who knew they were dead. Mm. And the look on his face was so terrible. I thought when I first, when I had a friend who dared me to write a romance. And I thought in that moment, I was like, this is why, because I, what I knew about this guy is that he took the craziest jobs. He was at, they call it the Nut House. It's the craziest firehouse in New York City. It's out in Bed-Stuy. This is where the crack houses are. This is where people burn alive daily. So like he would run into burning buildings. He was doing this crazy, crazy firefighting where he was going to die. And I realized, I was like, oh my God, he's committing suicide. He, he mm -hmm. wants to die. He wants to die. So my friend, about a couple of years later, um, another friend of mine was working on erotic romance. And we're talking. Uh, she was having a trouble with the plot, and I worked in film for 20 years. And so she was like, oh, help me with the plot. So we're kind of going through this thing. My husband was working a, a, a criminal case out of town. He was investigating something. And so we're kind of on the phone, and she said, you should write a romance. If you don't write a romance, you're lazy. You're an asshole. You're lazy. And I said, well, I don't write fiction. I write plays. I write comics. I write movies and television. She said, wow, you're just lazy. You're lazy. You love this, and you should do this. And gay romance is getting hot. And I was like, ah, that's crap. I'm, she said, I dare you which is the worst thing you can say to me. <laughs> I dare you. You have, In two months, you could write a romance. I guarantee you would love it. And so I took the dare. And I literally thought, what is the most romantic story I could tell? And I thought, I'm going to give that guy a happy ending. Mm. I'm going to get him out of the World Trade Center. And so literally, if you look at that book, that story is literally structured. I took him into and out of the World yeah. Trade Center. Now, because I knew so many guys, I knew guys in the 343. I knew guys that died in the towers. I knew, like, I knew so many people in the service that I did ride-arounds, I went to the stations, I did interviews, I went down to Red Hook, I sat in the bars, and I also knew a lot of them. So, like, I'd eaten at their houses, and I'd been at their kids' christenings, and so, like, I kind of knew them, but I really dug in. I was like, listen, if this may be a romance novel. I am not going to half-ass this. I knew people that died in the towers. And so I treated it, seriously and i went and rode around in fire in fire engines and uh, ambulances and i went to the towers and i went to ground zero and i did at the same time my husband had worked the autopsies for 9-11 so i knew a lot of the behind the scenes and so mm -hmm. i'd seen a lot of photographs that weren't made public about how terrible it was and what mm -hmm. happened et cetera, et cetera. and so when I started writing the book, I was like, I'm going to go all the way down. I'm not going to half-ass this. I'm not going to treat it lightly. It's a romance, right? I want it to be a romance. I want it to be friends to lovers. But I'm not going to write this so that they're – because a lot of times when you have – in gay romance, you have this thing that they call gay for you or out for you where it's like yeah. two straight friends and they fall in love. For me, I was like, I want to write guys that are actually firefighters. Like I want to mm -hmm. write guys that really have complicated emotional relationships with each other. And so the book just kind of happened. I wrote it in six weeks. I sold it in two days, actually in like 42 hours. And then it was number one for six months on Amazon. It just blew up. And it's yes. funny because that book became a watershed. Hothead, um, I didn't know it at the time, but Hothead 
did New York Times numbers, but because I wasn't with a big five company, I didn't know this. I should have known because all of the big six publishers called me to offer me a contract. <laughs> and I was like, yep, nope, I'm good with Dream Spinner. I'm really happy. I love my publisher. But that book, they call it now the marijuana of gay romance because they did a survey of, it was like 13,000 people who read gay romance. 46% of them, Hothead was their first book, was yeah. their first gay romance because it was unlike other books that had done. And listen, there had been other gay firefighter books before. There had been other obviously gay romances before. It was just a different kind of gay romance. And so it became, and I feel really blessed because you can't, as an author, you can't plan for those lightning strike books. It happened to be the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. That was not by accident. I had planned that. But it happened to be a moment when J.R. Ward was about to do Lover at Last. I'm so sorry. That's my other phone. It's fine. It happened to be a moment when the, um, the, the genre was ready. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that power really translated itself. It really unleashed itself. Um, and uh, Well, talking about the moment. So, it, it, as you said, it was... It's set in 2011, the 10-year anniversary of to the 9/11, um, uh, mm. and it has to be set. I mean, it's so set where it is and why it is, and and then you've got these two characters um, who are essentially all about family. I mean, whether the family yep. is the one they've created That's down exactly at the yes. firehouse or the one they're creating together, and or the one they were born into. It, they're just that's their that's who they who makes them real and i got to the end i'm like well why aren't they getting married <laughs> well funny story a year after that book came out marriage became marriage equality passed right. in new york city and so in 2012 when i here's the funny thing i have been getting letters about the sequel the sequel to hothead is called hardhead it has yes, been and I'm, for many I'm, years. It has been okay. written and sitting there. It is too long. It is two hundred and forty thousand words. The book is written. It is Tommy's story. It is. Are all you there. about to give us an exclusive announcement? No, no. This has been out oh. in the world. I, I wish. But what I will <laughs> tell you is, like, I get death threats. I actually had red hair when I started writing romance, but I got so many crazy. Oh my gosh, crazy, crazy, crazy death threats from people that were like, if you don't get this book, I'm going to show up on your door. If you don't read this book for me, I'm going to break your legs. What? And um, yeah, crazy, um, I, which was odd. I had never really experienced that as a screenwriter, but in romance, man, they were really pissed. Um, but I learned to sort of navigate that. The thing is, I deal with it in the second book. I obviously mm -hmm. do. The thing is that at that time in 2011, it, it would be a miracle if they ever lived together. Right? right it's a miracle so i was never gonna do a thing where it's like and then they're both in tuxedos in white tuxedos at city <laughs> hall no bullshit there's no way that those guys in red hook but they could live together they could right. make a space the irony is the next year there's actually a character i reference in hothead who i met she turned out to be a fan of the book the first trans lieutenant in the fdny hmm. she had read the book I had written about her in Hardhead, and I met her at events. She said, I have to tell you, I'm a huge fan of this book. I'm a huge fan of you. I've been dying to meet you. And I was like, oh, my God, Brooke, her father is actually a captain in the FDNY. Like, her whole family is in the FDNY. And I was like, Brooke, you don't understand. You're in the next book. She was like, no way. And I was like, no, seriously. I did all this research about you because her transition happened while she was in the FDNY. Yeah. And so, like, yes. So I guess the thing to say is, like, I'm dealing with it. 
It's okay. coming. Okay. Well, Have my, no I mean, and the thing is, and I, I checked myself when I thought, why aren't they getting married? I'm like, well, duh, because it's, it's 2011. You know, it was yep. before US v. Windsor. And then I thought, well, I wonder if that has changed the way authors of male-male contemporary romance sure. can deal with their HEAs now. I mean, well, had... think about this. At one time, there was, a, there was a time, and this also comes out of fan fiction, right? Most fan fiction, mm-hmm. was, it started in fandoms. It started with teenage girls mm-hmm. and women who did not know a lot about the LGBT community. The first gay romlet, many of those women had never met a gay person. They had mm-hmm. read a bunch of gay people written by other women who had seen like Queer as Folk online. And so they had these very weird ideas about what gay men did and what they were because what they knew was queer as folk and gay porn. They knew like Sean Cody, <laughs> queer as folk. And so it was very fascinating to them, the idea that like gay men had body hair, right? Like that was shocking because the idea was, no, no, we're all hairless twinks with a six pack. Or that gay men didn't all love disco or that gay men didn't all wear lycra all the time. And so, like, there are these weird illusions. And so there are certain tropes that are slow. They're dying a slow, horrible death. Things like the kooky, like, genderqueer, like, quasi-drag. That's something that comes out of television, right? Some of it's real, but a lot of it's out of television. I always say that a lot of times what happens in gay romance is not really about the LGBT experience, that the gay men in gay romance are like the vampires in Twilight. They are a creation which allow, like the vampires in Twilight allowed a a very sex negative Mormon woman to do a romance that was about yearning and stalking, right? And so whether you love that book or you don't love that book, that vampire is not a real person. That vampire is a way for her to talk about sexuality and violence Mm -hmm. in a framework she was comfortable with. I think for a lot of women who write gay romance, it actually has nothing to do with LGBT people. It is a way to have a romance in which both characters have agency. Because in the Mm. patriarchy, if you're a dude, you have all the power. And in a gay romance, you don't know who's on top. You don't know who pays the bill. You don't know who's the rich one. You don't know who has the job. You don't know who's in control. Whereas if I write a romance with a man and a woman, a ton of baggage comes in, even if I'm a feminist, right? All this baggage comes in. The minute you write a gay romance, all that's off the table. And mm-hmm. so I think for, a, and, and I've talked with women who write gay romance who have said, yes, yes, that's it exactly. I'm writing a romance in which gender is not a factor. Right. It so happens that there are really gay men, but a lot of gay romance is not really about gay men. It's really just about a romance in which gender is not an issue. Yeah. I talked to Tamsin Parker about mm, um, mm. her Olympic romances that came out earlier this year and, and how, you know, she included all sorts of pairings and, yes. you know, just the differences in gaze sure. that you can switch back and forth between those and kind of consciously or unconsciously. G- dis- you mean gaze, G-A-Z-E. Yes, uh, No, no, no. I just want it for the listeners. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess the other one too. Well, but, that one too. Um, but no, she yeah. probably meant as in the Freudian gaze. The, yes, the we're talking about the, the female, the you know, POV. when she writes, when she writes two women together, you know, you, you're looking at the entire book through the female gaze and, and what that necessarily strips away and how the reader might not notice or the author might not even notice, you know, and, and it's it's really interesting to read it for pleasure and then go, whoa, what did I just learn from that? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, actually. I was just I'm an Austin freak. I love Austin. And I've just been reading a bunch of criticism. Actually, uh, Persuasion is my favorite. Pride and Prejudice for fairy tale. Emma is the most perfect. But I was reading this criticism of Pride and Prejudice. And one of the things that this critic said was you don't notice. But one of the great tricks that Austin plays on you is that. Lizzie is a completely unreliable narrator. And so Mm. when you're reading that book, you have all of her prejudices because she is your narrator. 
And Austin is so deft at making you prejudiced that mm -hmm. you feel resentful when your prejudices are exposed, which makes you have feelings. Now, the irony is when I was doing Hothead and actually in every book I've done since, one of my favorite genres of not just romantic suspense, but neo-gothic like Victoria Holt, Mary Stewart, these sort of 60s gothics of like a woman in a house, right? But when I, when I was doing Hothead, I consciously said, I always set myself a challenge as an artist, like as a writer, not for the reader. This is just a game, I, excuse me, which I play on my own, where for Hothead, my challenge was I'm going to write a gothic romance, but the virginal librarian is a six foot six redhead. Hmm. He is going to be an unreliable narrator and he doesn't know it. And so I literally, if you go through that book, I've had fan mail where people say, I love the chapters in Dante's POV. He has no chapters in his POV. Yeah. They'll say, I love the part where Dante says this. I'm like, Dante never says that. That's because <laughs> of the unreliable narrator. This is a cool thing you can do in certain kinds of romance fiction with a single POV where you shift the impressions, right? You bend the reader experience. And as a writer, that's super fun because you can actually create really cool emotional effects um, and explore stuff, right? You can make people laugh. You can make people horny. You can make people cry. You can make people scared because you're getting you're kind of like down in the in the hardware of their consciousness you're like down at the machine code mm -hmm. well, you are such a good um author you are also an author teacher you write these <laughs> i non do teach a lot <laughs> yes a lot. and you you travel so much um i don't know how you find time to do everything but you do have um you know you have written two nonfiction books that help authors one about um i guess what would be the well, Best I have marketing and promo. The A -game. I, I marketing, have, okay. Yeah, A-Game is a marketing book, really, a promo book. Yeah, and uh, which I love, and I need to talk to you about after we get done with this, too. But And then you have a new book called Verbalize, which I think, did you do a workshop on this at RWA? I certainly or? did. I did okay. a, a couples class at RWA okay. based on it. Yeah, and so... Um, I would just, and that's just about like characterization and how you get well, into. Well, it's, it's funny. I came, so I came to romance from film and theater. And so when I came to romance and people would say, oh, well, he has a squint and she has a limp. And yes, yes, definitely. She's a size six. I thought like, this is ridiculous. Those aren't stories. Because when I worked in film, the actors would come to, or, or theater, they would come to me and they would say, well, what am I playing? What am I doing in the scene? And I've directed and I've, I've written for directors for so long. When I came to romance, I brought all those tools. So like I had this weird box of tricks, like a bag of tricks that I used as a screenwriter and a playwright that sort of came into fiction. And the core, one of the big cores of this is the idea of a character action. So a character is not a collection of, like people will often say to you like, oh, I'm working on a character and they'll fill out these, I call them impersonal ads. It's like a series of questions. What's the hair color? What's the eye color? What's the religion? What's yeah, the body type? What's the, but here's the thing. <laughs> What does that tell you about the story? Nothing. You can't write it. And so one of the things that I started doing as I was teaching, this actually happened with promo too. I had all these weird tricks that I brought promo-wise from show business. And I said like, well, guys, everybody does this. And everyone was like, no, no one does this. And so when I brought my verbalized thing, everyone was like, Kristen Higgins, actually, we were doing a character class with Farrah Rashawn. This is in San Diego. And Kristen turned to me because we were doing three of us. Each of us did like a 20-minute section. At the end of the class, she turned to me and she was like, that literally blew my head open. She was like, that has changed the way I write characters. I was like, what are you talking about? Everybody does this. I thought that everyone did characters the way I did characters. And so when I started, so I had been teaching these little classes and then that recording at RWA, it was 20 minutes, it went viral. And so suddenly I was doing all these <laughs> classes. I would just go somewhere and I would teach these classes. And then as I started teaching it, everyone was like, 
is there a book? Is there a book? Like, do you have a book? And I was like, no, because I kept thinking everyone wrote this way. And little by little, after like a year, I finally was convinced like, oh, wait, nobody writes this way. This is my own insanity. And so I decided like, actually, Kristen again gave me, she sort of gave me a firm talking to. She was like, listen, write the book. So I did. Um, I did this book verbalized and it's been, it's been amazing. It came out on the 12th of March and it's been steadily in the top 20 at Amazon. It was actually number one for a long stretch. And now it's just been kind of bobbing around from the top, from the top five to the top 20 (laughs) over the last month. It's, I'm digging it. I love it. And it's been really helpful. Actually, just today, there was a tweet. A woman was like, oh, my God, this book is magic. And I was like, thank you. Thank you, author, for telling me that my book is magic. Because I think I'm a crazy person. So if it's helpful, mazel you. I think you are a crazy person, but a very helpful, (laughs) lovable one. Well, thank you. That's good. Well, and I liked, I've I've read your your other nonfiction book. And I also like that your voice comes through in both fiction and nonfiction. But don't you think it has to? I think it's, I mean, like, as a reader... I always am reading for the voice. Like yeah. anyone, like if I said Cinderella in a room of 30 romance writers, we get 30 Cinderella's, but it's because the voice, the voice yeah. is what I want to read. It's why I'm always freaked out when people are like, yes, I wrote 15 books this year. And I think, what about your voice? Like, don't you want to sound like yourself? Because yeah. if you just pump it out, man, it's really hard to have it feel fresh. Well, talking about pumping it out and all the books you read, um, what have you been reading lately or what do you recommend Ooh, to people? Okay, so I, it's so funny, I just read, and this is Eloisa James, is so, we meet, we're, we're very good friends, we meet quite often. She recommended this book by Mariana Zapata called From Lukov with Love, which I am obsessed with. Oh my God, it's so good. It's a sports romance about figure skating and it is so sexy. It's enemies to lovers and it is so beautifully written and so, oh, just loved it. Slow burn, like a really, really delicious, I love a slow burn romance. Oh, me too. And it just makes you earn every second. She has another book called The Wall of Winnipeg and Me, which again is sort of set in the same world. And she's amazeballs. Like I I loved this book. It was just so gorgeous um, in every way. Of course, I love Sonali Dev. Um, a Distant Heart is her most recent. I've actually seen a chunk of the even more recent one, which is not out yet, so I can't name it. But if you haven't read A Distant Heart, I really recommend it. It's phenomenal. Um, I'm also. Is going... it sad? I mean, I, well, she I love always her. has. She's so intense. She's so I intense. Know. She has, and actually, what I love about her is that she has like this this painful seed at the center of all of the books, and so I always feel like there's this <laughs> smoldery pain underneath everything oh I, I love that I love that I love that um, I'm also doing a reread of KJ Charles I don't know if you've ever read KJ Charles she writes uh, gay historicals yeah. um, think of England Is yes there okay. well, she has society of gentlemen and then she has um, the magpies books a magpie lord case of possession flight of magpies I've been rereading the magpie series and then that led me to society of gentlemen she just has this like delicious tart historical sense and they, a lot of them are sort of, they're like late Regency, but then also into Victorian, which is a period I love anyway. But I just think, I think she's amazeballs. Um, is she all male, male? Yes, she's all male, male. Um, and then 
if you know Joanna Shoup, I first found Joanna because of her, well, I had read her Regencies, which I liked, like Courtes and Duchess, etc. But what I loved of hers, like I got obsessed with, was this Gilded Age series, Magnate, yes. Baron, Mogul, Tycoon, which were so great. I love the period. I love, I love New York City anyway. But like the 1880s in New York is one of, it's one of my obsessions. Like I have my own alternate history I want to do that's set in 1881. So like, I just love that time period. Do it, do it, do it. But then she has this new series also set in the Gilded Age, um, Daring Arrangement and then Scandalous Deal. And I can't remember the third, Notorious Vow, Notorious Vow, which is again, like it's about American dudes, American heroes with English ladies. And it's I love quite, it. I just, well, she just has this very like louche, lush, like delicious. Speaking of, if you like fantasy romance, I highly recommend uh, the Kingmaker series by Amanda Boucher. The, a Promise of Fire is the first one. Mm-hmm. And I read it because the editor sent it to me, Kat Klein sent it to me to blurb. And I'm really skeptical about blurbs. When people are like, will you blurb my book? I'm always like, maybe, but if I hate it, I won't. <laughs> and, right, and so I yeah. literally said like, listen, if this book sucks, I'm not blurbing it. I loved it. I loved it. It's Greek mythology fantasy. So it's not sort of Tolkien-esque Northern European. And it's actually strangely not even late Greek mythology. I'm a religion philosophy guy. So like I'm kind of a dork about mythology. It's actually Titanic. It's pre-Olympian. And so it's really interesting Greek mythology. But so the Kingmaker series, um, Amanda Boucher. I also had um, the very great fortune. I met Molly O'Keefe, who I'd never read. Um, She writes contemporary, but it often has like a romantic suspense-y vibe, like a tone that's romantic suspense-y. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has, uh, the book that got me obsessed is a book called Everything I Left Unsaid, which is not at all what I expected. <laughs> I thought I got this book. Actually, I it was one of those books where I was at a conference and I was on the train coming back from Boston and someone literally was like, oh, hey, do you want this? And I was like, yeah, sure. I've, she seems really smart. And uh, we had done a reading um, the night, uh, two nights before. And so I was like, yeah, she seems smart. Like, I'll read her book. I was so obsessed with this book, this Everything I Left Unsaid book, that on the train, I finished it, and I bought the second book, and I finished it on the train. And then I was, like, mad tweeting about it because I, <laughs> I was she just, uh, just amazing. She's one of those authors where, like, her skills are so intense that as I'm reading it, I'm learning things. Right. So, like, she just, oh, I love her. Bad Neighbor, she's Bad Neighbor, too. She's, she's just really, like, sexy. She does a comic, she does erotic, she does contemporary. She also, I think, does historical. The thing is, I really am a subgenre slut. Like, I'll go in any direction. Um, I, 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 yeah, so, I don't know. I, yeah, she's a, she's a, I don't know how to describe it, an author's author. Like, mm-hmm. I know a lot of authors just really go crazy i mean not that our readers don't too but i just noticed a lot of authors like really going like i can enjoy this and i can appreciate you know this this and this about it well she has i think the thing is is that she actually is sort of unapologetically um i don't want she's not literary it's not like she's uh, it's not like up your butt like proving that you're smarty pants it's that i always whenever i read a book of hers i can feel it's again it's like the muscle I can feel the motion of the mm-hmm. book. I can feel like her, I just, I can feel her intelligence. She's just such a smart, stylish writer. And so I'm, I'm just always aware of like the, the muscle in there. And so like emotionally, they're always like really gripping. They're always really intense. Speaking of intense, this is not a romance, but I would like to do a shout out. If you have not read Rachel Kane's new, um, it's Stillwater Lake. And then the sequel just came out. Um, 
and I'm not going to remember. I'm going to have to go look it up. It's But Rachel Kane has a new... It's Stillwater Lake is the first one, and then the sequel, they're thrillers, but they are like edge of your seat. I read it in an hour and 45 minutes in the middle of the night, and I literally like picked up the sample, and then I was like, one click, I'm reading that right now. And Rachel's amazing. Like If you haven't read her great library series, her uh, uh, Ink and Bone, etc., like those books yeah. are next-level genius. They're, I think they're considered YA, which I think is bogus. I just think she's mad 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 genius mad skill well, so much ya is oh well it's, it's just not the thing is they call it ya because i think it's like it's oh, not the just book. for kids yeah, yeah it's just not I and mean, that's really going all the way back to harry potter the minute they were like harry potter it's middle grade i'm like dude there's like empedocles in those books like that's yeah. not <laughs> like you're funny and all but get serious so i feel like the the reading public is so smart and authors who are like saying like look the readers step up the readers really want me to push it i really respect that i really mm -hmm. i respect that and there's so many authors that do that like Alyssa cole has her new princess book out which is a another book that's just like pushing 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 nalina singh is always pushing that cressley cole does that where there's like this feeling that they're not settling yeah um uh, Eloisa is a very good friend and so this is probably I'm biased because I love her so much but she has this new Wild and Love series that came out but like Eloisa writes historical and like historical is seen as a pretty stuffy genre in a lot of ways unless it goes erotic right at which point right. they're like Darcy and Bingley spanking each other in the greenhouse which great but that's really not my interest for historical like I'm kind of a stickler about historicals and she is too but this new wild and love series like she's like breaking the mold like she's going in totally fresh interesting wacky directions i thought i've only read the first one but i thought that too it just it felt like a breath of spring air yeah, and it just fresh. and i didn't yeah and it might have had to do with the hugh grant lookalike coming out of the water <laughs> on the cover but um yeah i was but like she's really trying to and i'll tell you like she's really trying to push in new directions in historical like she's super conscious of how white the books are she's super con and i just know that because i know her personally but like she is always looking to move the knee and here's the thing that very few people know about her she is a devoted passionate gay romance reader and the way we met is she wrote me a fan letter i had no idea oh. she wrote me a literally the fan letter said she was like i do not know if you know me my name is eloisa james and i was like <laughs> girl seriously but she was like i would like to talk to you about the eroticism in your books i do not know if you know i am also a professor and i was like seriously really <laughs> seriously the funny thing is we actually are very very good friends now but at the time I was like, Eloisa James reads gay romance for reals, but she does. She actually reads more gay romance than I do. Like, she oh. recommends books. Like, she, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. If you haven't, go out and read it. Ice Planet Barbarians. Like, <laughs> Ice Planet Barbarians is amazing. Oh, my God, it's amazing. Damon, Damon, can I tell you? I've had so many people on this podcast, and they want to come on and talk about Ice Planet Barbarians. Dude, so, again, I'm it's going to put this out there in the universe. I know. Ruby Dixon. I, I will do whatever I have to to protect your identity, but if you would like to come on the podcast, now I will tell you. I so know many people want to come I on. I know the identity. I know, and Jeez. I'll tell you, super talented, super skilled author. So I... like, it is no joke. The the skills, and this is one of those things. Like as a writer, I always feel like it, it's a little bit like athletes slapping each other on the ass because I literally look and I'm like girl those skills like oh my god it's like watching it's like watching michael jordan like some sometimes i'm reading these books and i'm like it's so delicious to watch an author just like flex the muscle and it's... i and you know you get that you get that I, I, you know i'm a beverly i'm a huge beverly jenkins fan and i just went through this phase where i went back i was i was rereading indigo actually and so i'm rereading indigo and there was this one point in like chapter five where i was like 
I had to like put the book down. I was like, her skills are so out of control, mm. like just mad skills. And so there are times, and that's what happened from Luke Off with Love, that skating book. I was reading that book, blowing up, watching this, watching Zapata, like blow it open. Like her skills were so crazy. Charlotte Stein, same thing. Like I'll be mm-hmm. reading a Charlotte Stein book and I'm like, how did you do that? Like how, did, how on earth did you turn? Like she writes the best cunnilingus in the business. I'm here to say, and I say this as a gay man, but I say this as a gay man who actually likes cunnilingus. And so like reading those books, I was like, this is poetry. Like this is literally cunnilingus elevated to literary art form. And so like that, I love watching. Like when people just push whatever they're doing, I, whether it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know, amputee mermaids or vampire snuggies or whatever, like who cares? I just want the feelings, right? Like I want, I want a good ride. It's like a roller coaster. I want to, I want my hair on end. I want to cry. I want to pee my pants. I want to sweat. Love it. Uh, was, well, I mean, you've said you're an omnivore when it comes to books. Is there a book or genre that people would be surprised that you read? I mean, um, your husband's skull probably books? the most. I, don't I mean, know. the thing is, everyone kind of knows I'm I'm such a genre slut, but I think I think the thing that people well, I don't know they probably would know that too. I read a lot of um, I read a lot of criticism, but I th- I'm pretty open about that. But I do read a lot of like wanky literary criticism. This is partially from like my academic time. My thesis was on the Marquis de Sade, and I read a lot of stuff about anti-humanist pornography during the French Enlightenment, which sounds so wanky, but it's true. And so, like, there are times where I find myself reading these incredibly weird neo-Freudian books about pornography or about horror films or about... And so, like, probably my readers wouldn't know that. I think my author friends do, because I, I, I actually find that stuff very inspiring. I think it's interesting anytime you put artists together, the way they rub together the ideas exchange, you know? Um, there's a thing in paramecium, like single-celled organisms, where because they're single-celled, if they always reproduce themselves, the species never evolves. And so mm-hmm. the thing that paramecium do where they rub up and their scylla, like the little fuzzy hairs on their little, it's not a belly, but like they're on their bodies, rub together and they exchange DNA so that they don't get inbred. And I sometimes think like that's what authors are doing when we go to a conference or we do like a blog tour is we're like rubbing our scylla together so that we can exchange DNA. So that like if I'm reading Charlotte Stein or I'm reading Nalini Singh or I'm reading like, I love the rubbing. And the thing with criticism is it's often outside of the genre and so it's like fresh it's like an it's an untapped um it's an untapped perspective on the genre or an untapped perspective on the craft and i think that keeps you as an author it keeps you like on your toes it keeps you fresh because mm-hmm. i think readers get bored i mean i think i mean listen we have all read a book where we're like in a series and it's like book 11 you're like really seriously you're like that was book three just now she's a redhead or oh that was actually that should have been the end of the series but you're just going to keep milking it now they have triplets and twins and secret babies where it it's no longer about the story it's about the money and that's a bummer oh yeah and i feel like reading keeps you fresh reading keeps you like and so like i'm always kind of trying to read i read a lot of history i read a lot of criticism i read a lot of science I went through a phase, I was doing this book, Horn Gate, which is paranormal, and it's got all this Hebrew gematria from the 13th century. So I started reading this weird history of Prague in the 12th century. <laughs> like, I just, and it's not because I'm going to write it. It's because it, it's like mulch. It like keeps me exactly. energized. Yeah. And and it, it kind of goes, I talked about this with Alyssa Cole um, and when she was on the podcast, is that you get these ideas and they do kind of just sit in the back of your head. And then three years, four years, you five years know. later, yeah. 
it comes out and you it, you got to just put it all in the stew pot and let it kind of cook there for a while. Well, it's like um, bulbs, right? Like you plant daffodil bulbs and you hope they come up in the spring, but maybe it'll be next spring. Like right. you, just, you just don't know when the right. buzzer's going to go. And off. you've forgotten what color you planted. Right. So when it comes up, you're like, "Well, dang, look at that pretty surprise, like a prezi." <laughs> and I think too, like it's one of those things when people will say, you know, talking about sort of diversity in romance or romance growing or my publisher calls it romance 2.0, like when romance grows up mm. is that thing for romance 2.0 is when people say like what can i do it's the simplest answer in the world i was on this panel um I, every year i do this panel at new york comic-con and i'm on this panel for the new york times and i'm doing this blah 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 and we're kind of discussing and it's like a thousand people in the room and someone raised their hand and they're like how can we get comics that are not about a tr like underwear model white people and i said buy them that's how right. you do it because it's a business and so when people are like what can i do i'm like review books you love read books mm -hmm. that you respect every time you find an author this is one of the reasons i'm always recommending books every time i find an author i admire i'm so happy to help their career i want to review them i want to boost them i want to sell their books because they are making me a better writer they're making my readers better they are expanding the genre like that the one thing we can all do is read books we love and share books we love because there's no downside <laughs> it's all, it's all right. upside right? right and so like whenever people are like well i tried and i think well great every year how many books did you read this year that you didn't expect to every quarter how many times did you pick up a book that you normally would have walked by but eh, you're gonna give it a shot because i actually and i talk about this all the time like people talk about writer's block i think we have reader's block i think that we actually get in these weird ruts where we decide that we're going to do one thing or we need one kind of emotion or no, 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 I only want boy next door or whatever the thing is that pokes our no-no. And I think if you can get past your own reader's block, it's actually healthy for you as a writer too. You know, it, yeah. it, it shakes the snow globe. One, and, and one of the most exciting things, this has happened to me recently, and I'll probably be sharing it on a, either on the podcast or my blog soon, but I'm discovering not only new to me authors, but that they have a backlist. Oh, hell yeah. It's like the most delicious thing in the world. Be like, you have seven of these? No, right. Well, when you go, where you actually say like, oh my God, I love your voice. Oh my God, you have 14 books. I'm so excited. I because know. It's, it's like being given a meal. It's like you're walking into a restaurant and they're like, here is your perfect meal all arranged for you and the same meal for the next 15 nights. You're like, oh I my know. God, so much variety, so many I, options. I started a new series and, and, and it's like literally like all I can think about, like, I should be working today. I'm like, oh, but you know what? If I went and read, that's really working. <laughs> yes, yes. And it is, but it isn't. Oh, Damon, I think we could talk about all of this for so long. For 200,000 years, yes. yes. That would be a very long, long podcast, but yes. Would you like to play my lightning round? Yes, do it. Let's go. Okay. All right. Let's go. Dark or milk chocolate? Dark. Coffee or tea? Uh, Coffee. When you're no, rings. wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Oh, Coffee when oh. I'm writing, tea when I'm living. Okay. <laughs> when your phone rings, do you answer it? No. How do you normally waste time on the internet? Uh, reading political articles. On your next vacation, will it be to the mountains or the beach? Mountains. Do you call it soda or pop? Soda. Do you prefer abs, forearms, or a chiseled jaw? Jaw. Are you more likely to buy a cover with abs or a beach? Mm, neither. <laughs> I think abs are so boring, and I think beaches are terrifying. I'm terrified. I think the sun is so gross, uh, so I never want to be in the heat. So if you said to me, like, 
like a butt, I would buy the butt. Or if you told me like great hands, <laughs> I would buy the hands. Or you were like eyes, I would buy the eyes. But like abs, I'm like, you have like you're not eating dairy. I think, oh, we don't get to have mac and cheese. Boring. <laughs> so, okay. so I guess no. beach. I guess of the two, I would pick beach because you can always okay. leave the beach. You can't leave the abs. Okay. And the very important last question, what are your feelings about turning to the last page of a book first? <gasps> Sin. Outrage. <laughs> That's like, well, listen, Jude Devereaux once said, it's the hardest genre to write because everyone knows the ending before they start. And so why would you turn to the ending? The ending, you already know what happens. The whole, it's like saying, do you ever get on a roller coaster and skip the roller coaster and go to the end? Why? The whole point of the roller coaster is the emotional ride. I want the feelings, man. I don't want to skip all that. And then like, I get to enjoy the part where I take the seatbelt off and I get out. Like, <laughs> no thanks. No thank. In fact, I want to skip the end. I want to take the roller coaster again. Isn't that? All? I mean, that's a great. That's let's end it on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is oh, fabulous. Oh, you're so welcome. We'll do it again. Definitely. Thank you for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please go to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. And if you want to share your love of a book with the world, you can go to our Facebook page and leave a comment. Or, this is the fun part, I have an actual phone number in our show notes. Call, leave a message about a book that you love and you want the world to know about, and I'll try to play your voicemail on the air so that you can be a part of this podcast, which, after all, is all about reading and readers. This is Lindsay Emery on Women With Books. Keep reading.